no, it's the Creator Spaces show. We could talk about a whole bunch of stuff. I'm happy to talk about this concept that I've been exploring recently called a process playbook. I love uh, the sound of that because in the framework that I use, I've got loops that include processes of various sorts. Sure. And then a collection of loops with standard operating procedures is called a playbook. What is a loop? A loop is any flow within a system that has been built in such a way that it has some sort of adaptive feedback in it. So it's anything you do regularly. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I've heard other people call it like a business Bible or sort of the singular asset necessary to sell a business as a way of you know, yeah. transferring knowledge. I'd love to talk about that. I think that could be a really yeah. fun conversation. Yeah, let's make this the episode then. This is going to be a very different episode than normal creator spaces because this is our first return guest. And yeah, let's talk about things that people don't talk about too often, especially in relation to this sort of stuff that we're doing now. Because like I'm building one of these out specifically for Twitter. Okay. And so that, I'm guessing, is very different than the kind you're building out for your business right now or that you're helping businesses build out. Yeah, a lot of different pivot points you can actually have. The term that we've been using at X-Ray is the process playbook. And, and that process playbook is sort of the how-to for everything automation and robotic and everything human-related. So the process playbook like contextualizes the automated systems with the non-automated systems and make it abundantly clear what a human in social media or a human in whatever specific process, marketing, onboarding, operations, whatever, needs to do to run their five or 10 processes that are critical to the success of their role. So it loops together a whole bunch of different dimensions of the workflow at whatever company. Yeah, I'm interested now. Do you build these out on a role basis first? Uh, sort of what's the workflow for mapping something like this out? Yeah, it's on a process basis. So a really good example is onboarding. And we've built this out both for us internally and for several members of the X-Ray Tech membership. So onboarding is a really good example because it's a process that spans multiple departments and multiple roles. So the process playbook is going to have a page for every person that is going to initiate an automated or semi-automated task. So you might have a salesperson who would drag their deal over to closed one when they close and win that deal. And then that actually kicks off the automation for the operations team to then, we'll say, delegate the four people who are going to be on this project, right? So the mm. operations team only gets bothered <laughs> when there's a deal that's marked as closed one. And that automated system pings the operations team. They might fill out a survey designating who are the four people a part of this project. And then after they fill out that survey, maybe there's another 10 different automated steps that would create the Google Drive folder or the Slack channel or whatever else, and then notify all of the people that were designated to be on the project. That would be a multi-page sort of step because one page would be dedicated to the salesperson, one page is dedicated to the operations person, one page is dedicated to like the technical talent who's going to be on the project. You know, it culminates in this playbook where now it doubles as uh, training material, right? Because if you have a new salesperson, right. you don't need to teach them what they need to do to enable the operations team to actually do an onboarding correctly. You just give them that page of the process Point playbook and they know it. <laughs> yeah. That's it.
Interesting. I love how this is a very similar thing coming out of a very different context, and it ends up so different. Yeah, tell me about it. What do you mean? So I build ground up role specific. 90% of the stuff I build is designed for a team that's never going to be larger than maybe 10 or 12 people. Oh. So because of that, in most cases, it's all tied to a single role. Mm-hmm. So the education around the processes in a cross-team scenario occurs very similarly, but the majority of processes are for a single person to own and manage right. because it's their responsibility to understand those and improve them over time. Mm-hmm. Whereas in your onboarding example, in building out like a small media company, I would put a single person in charge of all client partnership relationships for sponsors and other partners like that, mm-hmm. so long as there was a monetary transaction involved yeah or a goal of one and then in that case they would actually be in charge of onboarding it wouldn't go to another team member it would be during onboarding where they would pull in a data analytics lead and say okay let's get the analytics set up for this partnership but then that team member would leave again Hmm. and so the ownership of the process falls on that partnership's lead I think that that's a wonderful way to do it, too. I mean, you're creating the intentional dependency and opportunity for growth for that person who's leading that process. And the thing that just gets me with it is that the team size dynamic changes the way you pin it all together so drastically. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to predict, too. Oh, yeah. Had I not already written out two or three of these before, and now I'm on my, call it, three and a half one, (laughs) I would not have known these things. And I'm guessing if you had not scaled your last agency up, and built a lot of these things and found out how valuable some of those processes and automations you built, you probably wouldn't have ended up building in this direction either. Yeah, I think the past agency certainly contributed a little bit, but the bulk of the learning as to why I'm structuring process playbooks like this has been the previous nine months, basically. It's been, hey, I automated this process for you. Now you're going to take it over and try to maintain it or train people on it. So there was like this Mm. request of, hey, you can do this for me, but I don't want to be dependent on you forever. Okay. That's actually the same pain point where I came up with these. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like, I don't want to be dependent (laughs) on you forever, which is okay. You know, I'm not in business to be a black box. I'm not trying to lock people in like that. I don't think that's an ethical way to do business. But to the same extent, that really like pushed me to figure out what are the structures that I need to communicate in order to actually be replaced. So this singular process page or collection of process pages for onboarding lets us really easily like hand that off as here are your five process pages for onboarding. There's your salesperson, your operations person, your project manager, your this, that, and the other thing. Here you go. They're all live on this link. You can click and be taken to the Google Doc or the Notion page or whatever software that one textual description lives on. But ultimately, it's yours now. And it's this thing that can accumulate That was an aspect of my last company that I just didn't value or understand the fact that you need to have these processes established and written down for training, for scaling, for sale. Every dimension of it, you have people and you have process. Unless you're building products, those are the only two assets of value. Yeah. In my experience, it's a lot easier to hold on to process than people. Yeah, it is. That's a corporate structure. (laughs) Yeah. And the interesting thing, too, is like in building these process pages, it's like, where are the human decisions that you need a person to excel at, especially in the structure that you're talking about, like that onboarding lead, that's a person that I would imagine stays with the company and grows with the company over time. 
This sort of structure, and especially when I'm thinking about like these tightly knit teams, these are things where everyone has to have ownership. They have to have a share. You really want to have a five to 10 year average lifespan on a team member in an ideal world. And so that's a huge structural change, I think, to most companies, especially larger ones where they're looking at two to four years on the high end. And definitely like in a relationship facing role like that, you don't want somebody to shift. No. But on the other side of things, you've got content writers, you've got analytics team members, you've got other operational, more internal things that are mm -hmm. less brand facing or less client facing, mm -hmm. where you can build up those style guides and you can build up brands. And when it comes to partnerships, I'm a big fan of using personas over actual people for the majority of client communication. Okay. So using a team address in a shared inbox or creating the name of somebody who is almost obviously not a person, but is the face of the team that people communicate with most of the time. Yeah. And specifically for the reasons we're discussing. <laughs> yeah. So that way there's less friction in the transfer to remove the process from the person. Yeah. Those challenges like that, when you're moving key personnel that manage relationships, that's just hard, right? There's no easy way around that type of scenario. I think if there are people that are leaving, that is a bigger indicator that maybe, you know, your processes weren't as defined or your communication styles weren't as aligned right? Like it's more of a signal of underlying problems more so than it is a, oh, my process isn't defined enough. And this person doesn't like the way that my process is defined. It's like, probably not, <laughs> you know, people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. Like that's just an old adage I've heard, but it's interesting. One aspect that I want to just return to here, and I think you called them looping and how yeah. there's like this iterative feedback mechanism inside of the loop. Could you like explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so I don't build a process without a loop. I don't want anything to go one way. Okay. At least in the systems I build. Mm -hmm. So if I'm building, like, say, a company operating system, yeah, I'll think of it as a series of operational loops that occur on regular basis. Quarterly, you've got monthly planning normally, some sort of weekly meeting. But then at the role level, people are operating on a few regular things. Yeah. So like if I'm growing a Twitter account and I'm in charge of growing a Twitter account, the things I'm doing are batching tweet writing. I'm then going to schedule those tweets or post them throughout the week. I've got some sort of preset engagement time every day and I'm probably writing threads. If I'm doing all those things, that's not enough because that gives me no guidepost to turn back to. Mm -hmm. So every day or every week, depending on the pace that I'm posting things, I should also be having an analytics checkup. And that should relate back to a dashboard related to the management of that account. And that should be built into the process because the very last thing on the process at the end of the week or the very beginning of the week, however it would go, for me, it's the beginning. I would sit down with those analytics, look over them, report any insights, and I'd adapt the plan for the following week based on those. I think that is an incredible habit to establish. My devil's advocate here is don't you have a hundred different processes that are running at all these different levels of the company? Do you also batch the Not reviewing really. of all these analytics? Oh, definitely in many cases. And as an organization grows, I put in a dedicated analytics lead who then takes over that role or uh, a portion of it for many people. Because there's a point at which scale 
comes into play in analytics move beyond just putting down numbers and tracking over time and move into the actual data science portion of it. And that's when it grows beyond any individual, at least but, in my opinion, when it comes to media. Yeah, totally. If anyone's yeah. seen Google Analytics or the type of data that <laughs> you can collect from some social listening tools, like it's an incredible amount of data. But the aspect there about, you know, the, your learnings from the previous week and deploying it to the future week, the thing that you're actually looking at is the result of the process, in this case, like a platform. You're not actually measuring right. the process itself. You're measuring how good the output of the process was relative to itself over time. So I think this is where we're getting into semantics. Okay. And it's not just semantics, but I think we use different definitions. Okay. Because at least to me, I see the process under management, or in my phrasing, the loop under management, as the management of a Twitter account, which would include underneath of it processes, including the creation of content, the analytics and review, and the posting and scheduling. Mm -hmm. And I would look at each one of those individual processes as a component of the loop. Okay. Would you phrase that the same way? All of those different components of your loop, or in this case, sort of the output that we're trying to generate, growing a, a Twitter following account, I would keep that defined as you've defined them. I think the two layers that I'm talking about, where I think our automations actually differ probably quite a bit, is your automations would maybe post, right, the Twitter post or, you know, automatically collect the analytics, maybe send you an email on Monday morning with, hey, here are all your Twitter analytics for your review of your meeting this afternoon. And some of the process changes or the processes that I'm building and I'm talking about are really the first 30 seconds of what you said. I need to generate content. I need to do this. Like, what are the checklist milestones? Oh, no, my loop need... would, so my loop would, for example, take in top performing posts from the prior week mm -hmm. and then auto-generate variations of those posts to add to a queue or for review. I think that's awesome. That's that, sort of the end. Yeah, but that iteration step is so crucial. Whether it's automated or not, the fact that there is a take a breath, sit down, review what just happened and make a decision on this, I think that's so critical. And in, in a lot of processes in our organizations, that step is just not addressed at all. Yeah, well, that's why they don't get anywhere. That's why I <laughs> phrase as loop. Instead of process, I don't want anyone to ever think in a straight line. That's a really good point, because that is a pretty categorically different way of thinking. Yeah, that's where I see the playbook shift is because forcing loops is sort of the base unit in my playbook. Mm -hmm. What happens is I have to tie ownership of that loop to somebody. And so that forces the role based definitions. And because mm -hmm. the loop gives sort of a broader definition, it ends up taking in, I think, a little more than some of your processes might normally. So what yeah. ends up happening then is through those two shifts in definition, we end up with, I guess they're more like role-based playbooks mm -hmm. for specific goals rather than process guidelines across an organization. Yeah. And I'm going to shamelessly adapt this to some of the stuff that we're doing now where honestly, I'd want to put a page in there specifically for adapting the process. That's how it would manifest in our sort of deliverables is that we would have a process page dedicated to updating the process and how do you create the loop dimension of it. But it didn't work. Oh, uh, oh, oh, I yeah. I was good enough. I'm not sure if it was my hiring, not high enough quality people or my description, but adding in meta step 
up to like SOPs for VAs did not work. Oh yeah. That's a different <laughs> yeah that's animal. I was like, I've gotta stick this in. It's gotta happen. It did not. And I think the people that were probably making process playbooks or looping guides are probably pretty different. The people that we're making for our COO, director of finance, head of operations type people. So they're already up to their eyeballs and process and they're like drowning in the million and one things that need to get manually done. We'll take the 10 steps that someone needs to get done in a day, cut it down to three and then give them visibility into the other seven things that just automatically get done. Yeah. And I think that's the big advantage, especially in the more complex processes you're talking about. Yeah. It's not a process that's going to be done in a day or even necessarily in a week. Like these could be asynchronous processes that, you know, end up getting bottlenecked because of the humans on any side. A member last week who's like, hey, can I delay 10 days? I'm just not really ready internally. It's like, okay. <laughs> that doesn't bother me, but it's definitely a change. We can pause that and let it go. Yeah. So question for you. Sure. Do you have a process playbook on how to create a process playbook? We are making that. That is the thing that's in draft right now. It's such an iceberg of an endeavor because when you make a process playbook, there's so many other things that happen underneath the surface. So I'm looking at a page right now and it's four really simple content areas. It's when do you use it? How do you initiate it? What to do next? And things you need to know. It's just those four <laughs> really simple pieces on a page. But the iceberg comes into effect when, oh, how to initiate it? I just need to complete this one survey or I just need to mark this deal as closed in Salesforce. There's somewhere between two or one and 12 automations that are hooked up to that action. So just because I move this deal from pending to closed one, that's all I need to do to trigger this automation. Now I have a process page that's explaining everything that's going on when I do that. But there's a hundred other things that happen that I don't even need to necessarily do, but I just need to know about because I'm going to be opening Google Drive or Slack at some point, and I'm going to be messaging somebody about this new member that we just got. And that Slack channel needs to be there. And it would be kind of nice to know how the heck it got there. So that's really what the process pages are for, is to like make it abundantly clear the one or two things that the person needs to do. And then just give the iceberg of context of, hey, this happened because of this. We're using this variable to populate this content field in this document. And like, you know, you, yeah. you sort of web together the tapestry of templates and assets that you already have. And in order to build the process playbook, you need to have done so many other things. And like a process playbook is really not going to be very helpful if there is no repeatable way of doing this process manually, period. If you can't create a checklist right now for doing, you know, a key process at the company, you don't need a process playbook. You need to create repeatability <laughs> in the manual <laughs> steps of the process, right? If you do the same process 10 different ways and get 10 different results or 10 similar results, that's not good enough. You can't hand that over to somebody who's trying to buy the company or hand that over to an intern or somebody else you're trying to hire and expect them to do anywhere near as good of a job as you because it's just not going to work. That's fair. I think even if you have a great setup for those little points of contact where you do need a human in the loop helping manage the process, mm -hmm. as soon as that comes into play, if you try to replace that person, but the person you replace them with doesn't have the same experience or background, you can run the entire process off the rails immediately. For example, I use AI to write a lot of the tweets. 
but a human's got to go over them at least once mm -hmm. before we submit them to anyone to say, yes, no, these are good. Mm -hmm. That human has to know what a good tweet looks like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the number of times I've seen people skip that one little step in trading, like, oh, we need you to identify these things, but we're not going to teach you identification is astounding. Yeah. That is astounding. So how do you put that sort of little stuff into the process playbook? Would there then be like a link out to education materials on that subject? Or it's, would that be outside the scope? Right now, it would be outside the scope. What constitutes a good, quote, good tweet? Right now, that would really be outside the scope. Because you know, I checklist that stuff. Yeah, like that would be the best way to go about it, is to create a checklist around that. But for the process pages, we have very simple of like page status, mm. trigger description, action description, all of the automations that are linked to this process page, all of the documents that are linked to this process page in that checklist of, you know, a good Twitter post would probably be a document in my system here. The flow chart and what departments are involved. Those are really the main content areas. Flow charts. Oh, you okay. have to have it. You have Big to have fan. the flow chart. Yeah, you have to. And we struggled a lot with this early on was like, what is the right depth of detail to share? And the right answer is it depends because people that are paying you to build automations for them generally don't care at all what you did. They really care about what the result is. They really care about how they use it but they don't care that you used a loop here or an if statement there or a code step or it's all built in Zapier or Integromat and it uses this function. Like nobody cares. And it kills me a little inside. Like the nerd inside of me is just very sad because I'm like, but it's so beautiful. And the things that they care about are, right, I know how to use it. I know how to teach my team how to use it. It makes sense to me from an objective perspective, right? We are trying to accomplish this thing. And that's where we've geared a lot of our process playbook documentation for the person who generally doesn't care and just wants the result. And then all of our internal documentation, like when I said, oh, this is linked to whatever automations or whatever documentation, that's really stuff that we look at internally and we have filed away in case we ever break something or we need to go review something, or we need to update an automation, or we need to change the way the trigger works, or you know the way that one certain thing gets modified or added or whatever. So like mm. a lot of that documentation is for us versus the people paying us, because the people paying us just want the result. And you really can't fault them for that. They're an expert in whatever they're an expert in, and to expect them to learn the discipline of automation is a tall order. Yeah, so what do you think is the most complex playbook you've made so the playbooks are all really simple. <laughs> the playbooks are, mm -hmm. you know, those four content areas that I shared with you for operations or for sales ops or for adding a new team member or they're relatively similar topics, but they take very different shape. To answer your question, what is the most complex process playbook we've made? The most complex automations we've made that have turned into the process has been around a company called verb.co. They're a tool for really like personal trainers and fitness people, influencers sure. online that, you know, have their own following and want to create this SMS based touch point with their following oh. without giving their personal information. Right. It's an amazing platform that's been built all online. They set you up with a phone number. They give you AI generated questions to ask to help people train and connect and be better at being a influencer coach. So the automations that we made for that were gnarly. We hooked it up so that it's a simple 
survey can create their web page on Webflow. It creates the Stripe object so that all of the coaches can actually sell one click away plans on Stripe and updates everything and you can edit everything. It's a pretty amazing system. Now I want to know about how you're using Webflow because I've looked into something around Webflow with building templated pages before and it definitely seemed like I could do it, but I wasn't sure if it was worth it. So the content really matters. Yeah, so so I was thinking about using it for podcast websites to populate from an RSS feed, pull in all their content, and then create a Webflow page optimized for email capture featuring the podcast. I see no reason why you wouldn't be able to do that. Oh, I know that you can do it. I just want to know how it is working with Webflow to build out those sort of automated templates. Oh, fantastic. We set it up as a collection, and we're not doing it based off of an RSS feed. We're doing it based off of a survey completion through Airtable. So sure. it's all connected like that, but it's very you reliable. an RSS yeah. feed into an Airtable. Yeah, there's a little wonky things around IDs. Because you do need to use the IDs for everything in Webflow. If you're making references Uh, between different collections or tagging certain people. When you have multiple objects inside of Webflow, you just need to use the IDs. But that's the only thing that's a little hairy. So are you generating a whole new site every time? It's a new unique web page that's generated off of the collection of coaches. So it's a web page on the existing site. Correct. Yeah, that's quite what I want. If you want to generate a full website from scratch, exactly. how are you from going to hook up the series do- of inputs? How That's are you going my to hook problem. Up the, hook up the domains and everything. Like you can't. you can't. Well, I think you can get to the point of generating the site. You just can't actually migrate it or push it live. You know, you can put it up as a preview. I think. Yeah, you probably and could. Webflow, I don't think has easy access for that sort of create new project. No, I don't um, think there's an API duplicate. for that. Yeah. Not yet. Somebody's going to make this someday because it would be so useful. If only somebody could automate this. Well, I mean, it's automatable. You could do it through yeah. Keyboard Maestro, but it would be less fun to build than most things. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's the sort of thing where once you're using a tool like that, you can have one misclick or they change one UI X mm-hmm. thing by like, Yep. Yeah, and it's all dead. Yeah, it's all dead. You um, gotta rebuild it. And that's the very delicate automation. Yeah, that's why nobody's built it yet. I've been building a lot of websites off of Google Sheets. That's been really easy. Oh, yeah? That's cool. Yeah. Anyway, so you're building out these process playbooks. They describe a process. You're building out more complex processes. You have an automation search engine. Yeah. So it is currently in beta, for lack of a better term. It works right now. You can go to it. It's called xray.tools, X-R-A-Y dot T-O-L-S, xray.tools. And definitely, you know, let me know what you think. Michael, I'm sure you're hopping on right now. But long story short, it is currently only connected to Zapier. So it's a really fast way of searching Zapier and figuring out what can connect with Zapier. So you can add all of your tools there. We call them tool belts. To connect this back to process playbooks, when we're building a process page or a process playbook, we will create multiple tool belts to show all of the tools that are connected inside of Mm. this process page. So then if anyone wanted to say, oh, I wonder if we could also do this, they can just click on the tool belt, click on Discord, Slack, whatever the 3,000 tools that are in Zapier, right? You can click on those inside of X-Ray Tools and immediately be shown all of the actions, searches, and triggers associated with that particular tool. 
It's way faster than going to Zapier. I can't underscore that enough. We built it for us because we were like, oh my goodness, we are going from tool to tool all the time. I just want to see the bird's eye view of all the tools that we're using for this you know, member or this process and all of the things that are possible, right? And now you can just go right there, boom, and you can you know, copy that link and share it with a team member or share it with somebody else. And it becomes like a much faster and understandable way of sharing all the tools that you're working on. And you just have a much better sense of what's possible. In the next few months before the end of the year, really, we are going to add a lot more to this. How we're using it right now, we're going to come out with that in a more formal way. We're going to have example tool belts, example automations and templates that leverage certain tool belts for specific processes. So you can say, hey, what's X-Ray's onboarding process? And you can see our tool belt and you can see our process page. They all connect sort of together so that you can really see inside out, right? Through X-Ray, we're trying to turn our own company inside out. So we're trying to build the tools that allow other companies to really see and understand how they are getting certain processes done and what tools do they need to use or could they exchange, right? To get something done. So that's X-Ray Tools. I like it a lot. I use Zephyr and Integromat now, mm-hmm. and I don't think there'll be a day when I just use one. Yeah. Or at least I'd be surprised. Me too. But I could see a new tool coming and replacing both of them. That seems more likely to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, than, than converting to one. They both have their quirks. and It's really amazing. Yeah, and then now we're getting into more and more tools where you just give it an API endpoint and it does the rest. And that's where I see integrations getting really powerful. What tool have you used that did that? I think it's internal and retool. I feel like there's one more I've seen. But they're really designed to build 90 or 95% internal tools and tie together APIs. Uh-huh. And so that gives you a basic understanding of JavaScript or Python, plus that gives you untapped potential, I should say. I don't know how we could measure this or if you you have data on this or not, but how much money and time is actually dedicated at companies to generating internal tools? Millions or tens of millions of dollars at large companies. I know I personally, at my admittedly very small company that I kept small, we probably put five to 10% into internal tools annually. Uh Uh-huh. Most of that was around like podcast research tools, but nevertheless, they existed. And we spent thousands of dollars a year on a sub-million dollar a year budget. (laughs) Uh, So I'd say a good amount. I mean, you know, that its own sort of economic opportunity of being able to transition internal tools into external assets that can make money for the company. Uh, Just curious, since you did this in podcasting, like the tools that you built in the podcasting world, what would it take for you to sell one of those tools to your competitors? How do you elevate only, yourself to be able to, to do that? Yeah, only one of them turned out to be really commercializable and it is being commercialized. Yeah? Yeah. Why do you think it was only one? Because there were other competitors that came up who were more uh, dedicated to building out more fully featured client service solutions mm-hmm. for the other categories. I think we're probably the closest to building a fully automated podcast production suite compared to others. I've been working on that for years. Yeah, you, you are I could on tie that one of those together with uh, Zapier and Dropbox right now, like where it transcribes, it summarizes, and then it writes show notes. <laughs> I can build that now. It's not very good, but it is functional. Yeah. And it is more on AI summarization and text generation at this point. 
are you using like GPT-3 to do that or? I don't feel like GPT-3 is the best option for a lot of this stuff just because of the limits they put on their providers. It ends yeah. up not being the best generation option in the long run. Mm-hmm. Most of the tools I use are either homespun from like the generation perspective inside the tool for SEL or for other conversion and long form stuff. But that's really the slow part. Yeah, It's getting annoying because a lot of them are preventing API access and preventing automations from getting too heavily involved. Yeah. Because they yeah. don't want people doing what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is explicitly the thing they do not want you to do. <laughs> yeah. It's just a matter of time. Those systems need to be ready to handle that kind of volume. I was working on an automation yesterday and a Slack thread got murdered. It was just so many messages <laughs> inside. And like to imagine GPT-3 or any of those things end up hitting an infinite loop and gets around whatever <laughs> protocol they have for cutting those things off. Like it could just get really messy. So you can't blame them for saying, hey, it's not ready yet. It just takes time. Yeah. But Michael, I'd love to see what your tool belt is. If you can add a few tools so, that you use on there, I'm curious if it's helpful. If I'm it's a helpful. simple guy. I'm simple enough that I really only have one issue point within mine, and that's ClickUp. That's an issue now? Where, well, no, that's my point of integration issue. There are some things I cannot do other places or that I can do other places that I can't do in ClickUp except through Integramat. And so because the rest of my stack is like Google Sheet and a form and email and mailer light, it's all very common tools and they all work well in Zapier. The only real point of issue that I run into is if I'm moving data in or out of ClickUp and it isn't a perfect sync. Does that make sense? Yeah. Have you used any like synchronization tools to try to sync like either ClickUp bases or I know you were in Coda for a while. Have you? Oh, I never used Coda. Oh, you didn't? No, I would not use a tool like that probably ever. Uh, (laughs) I I know how big of a fan you are of Notion. So I figured if you were in in Notion's camp, you were in. (laughs) What do I need Notion for? What do I need either one of them for? I use Airtable for some things, and then I use Google Sheets for others. Part of my build is also that I have so many AppSumo deals that, like, if a tool works and it's an AppSumo, but it's a perfect option, I'm going to use that because then I don't have to add another recurring subscription. Do you get that for your team or just for you? I have a recurring subscription to AppSumo that I use to buy tools for my team. Oh, nice. So I have uh, Phrase, the SEO software. Yeah. I pay $30 a month for their highest tier version because I upgraded off of a lifetime AppSumo deal. And that's my team's account. And then I've got a few others like that too. But like the reason I'm building my websites on Google Sheets now is because I bought a 10 pack to spread simple on AppSumo. And so that gives me 10 websites built on top of Google Sheets. That's 10 directories. Uh At least one of those will be profitable. And that has e-commerce built into it. Yeah. All my landing pages are built on AppSumo tools. I guess a lot of what I do for myself and my team, I buy through there. Just because the lifetime deals are worth it. I've never seen apps before, to be honest. Wait, really? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of them, though. This is like the original. This is the biggest, by far. It looks like it. Yeah. I've been an AppSumo user for five or six years, probably. 
maybe longer. And wow. over half my tools come from AppSumo, I think. All my SEO suite does, I know for certain, because I don't do enough SEO to make it worthwhile to spend continuously in most cases. Mm -hmm. So the AppSumo tools give me SEO tools at one-off purchase prices that make it workable. Yeah, I'm scrolling through now. I'm pretty excited to dig into these. They're, yeah, uh, I just bought Crawl cool. IQ. That seems weird. If it actually does text generation, that is going to be the most highly trained text generator that I've ever used. But it seems almost like they're just inputting text into templates based on how detailed they're asking questions. Oh, yeah. There's like 400 questions to answer in their market research section. Jeez. So maybe it's a great tool. Maybe it's not. I'll probably find out in another year. Yeah, there's enough oh. of these on here. Right. Uh, you can test a new one. Yeah, crawl. Content crawl generation is very popular deals right now, but I've already got enough of them. Three or four different content generation tools. Well, hey, that's awesome. And yeah. a lot of those tools are definitely not going to be on X-ray tools, all right? Because no. they're, they're not on Zapier. That's one of the things, right? I think no code and automation get lumped together for whatever totally reason. Different. And they are they're not at all the same. Like no code tools, some of them happen to be for automation, but a lot of these no code tools are just souped up really technical features that have no connectivity to the outside world. Yeah. The AI tools I'm most interested in are going to be whoever gives me the ability to import, export content briefs from a Dropbox. And then the AI is going to automatically write from that brief. That's who's going to win my business first <laughs> mm -hmm. for the long term, because that's how I can actually get it into a workflow. But otherwise, to your point, these are really just graphical interfaces on top of text generation software. Yeah. It's not until you get a tool like Phrase where you have the SEO tool built in, and then the SEO tool will scrape together a content brief, and then the AI will generate content from that brief that you get to a point where you're actually in the automation space and you're out of no code. You know we're near no code at that point. Yeah. That's content automation. What you do, I think, actually is like very similar to no-code automation or is in the space of no-code automation. Yeah. But you lean more to the automation side of things, and no-code is just a tool set because it's faster. Exactly, right? We like to say we design workflows, and we're tool-agnostic workflow designers. That's ultimately what you're deciding. You're like, I always want to make this decision. And it's like, all right, we'll literally move your workflow out of the way so that you can make this one decision, and then everything else will just happen. So so that you can just focus on this one thing. Like we're really designing the type of work that people want to indulge in. And for a lot of people, it's just not. Unless you're doing automation, you just don't have that luxury. Yeah, makes sense. I like it. This has been a long winding conversation. <laughs> Yeah, it has, Michael. I really appreciate having me back on the show. It's always good to talk and catch up a little bit. And sounds like you've been up to some awesome stuff. Yeah, an interesting world out there. I've gone in some weird directions. Mm -hmm. I feel like every time we talk, I've made another zigzag, which is probably a good sign. But as I look at it from the standpoint of the points that are our conversations, it would be a wildly varying journey. It's interesting yeah. nonetheless. There's no right way to do this stuff. And it all takes time, right? The last time that we talked, I didn't have the glimmer of x-ray tools in my eyes. It was nowhere near a today thing. And here we are, 2021, with this tool up and live on the internet. And, you know, we're lucky to be able to produce it. You have to adapt to whatever is right in front of you. And 
I don't think a zig or a zag is necessarily a bad thing. I think we'll only know if zigs and zags are bad things in hindsight. Yeah. That's what the data tells us. I agree. I hear you. Hopelessly optimistic. Awesome. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day, Tom. You too, Michael. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye now.